This is Jeff Hunt, and as I look back on hosting the Human Capital Podcast over this last year, I'm reflecting on the fact that I love doing this show. I also love running my company Goalspan, but I'm profoundly grateful to be able to interview so many amazing guests on a regular basis. I'm also thankful about what a difference each of these people is making in the world of work today. Looking back on this year, some of my favorite episodes included Patrick Lencioni, who masterfully showed us a better way to understand your gifts, your frustrations, and your team. Brad Rencher, who's the CEO of Bamboo HR, and he completely gets the importance of culture and the people side of business. Steven Rogelberg taught us about how we can make meetings better. And Katie Burke, the chief people officer at HubSpot, taught us how to treat employees well, even when things aren't going well. I loved my conversation with Rasmus Hogard, who shared how to become a compassionate leader using the tools of presence, courage, candor, and also transparency. Human capital has gained significantly in popularity this year, and my team transformed the podcast marketing and the website, for which I am very grateful. I also have found through interviewing so many leaders that some common themes seem to rise to the top. One key theme is that the best leaders are willing to do the inner work. And so what I mean by the inner work is that they are willing to humbly look inside of themselves to learn about where their roadblocks lie, what their blind spots are, and where their greatest strengths are too. Leaders that are willing to do this can lead teams in the most effective way through almost any circumstance. They also happen to be the most human leaders that people actually want to follow. Reflecting on all of this, I realized there was one episode from this year that really helped us explore this inner work. My guest was Ginger Lapid Bogda, and she helped us learn about the Enneagram. I've decided to replay this episode, so if you've already heard it, listen again, and I guarantee you'll pick up some new golden nuggets. And if you haven't heard it, stay tuned, and my hope for you is that you'll learn something new about yourself and also the teams that you work with. As you reflect on 2022, I hope you're able to find many things to be thankful for, regardless of whether you had a challenging year or a great year or even one that was mixed. And as you look forward to 2023, close your eyes for a minute, take a deep breath, and pause to focus on those things in your life and work that give you hope and joy and give you the most fulfillment. My hope for you is that you'll focus on these with great intentionality in this year ahead and also find perhaps new ways to serve others, both inside and outside your work. Thank you for listening to Human Capital, and I hope you enjoy this extended replay episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Hunt, your host of the Human Capital Podcast. This is the place where we endeavor on each episode to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. Have you ever taken a personality assessment either at home or work? My guess is that you probably have. And if you have, I'm curious about what your thoughts were about your assessment. Was this a positive or negative experience? Has it helped you in your relationships at work or at home? Today, we're gonna talk about the advantages and disadvantages of these assessment tools and take the time to do a deep exploration on one tool that I think provides significant value. 
In fact, we're going to take two episodes to break this all down for you, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. Let's talk about the assessment or testing industry for a minute. According to Psychology Today, approximately 80% of the Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. use personality tests to assess employees and potential candidates. This enormous industry exceeds $3 billion a year, but it's also a crowded market with a lot of variability. Some of the more common tests you might be familiar with include Myers-Briggs, Caliper, DISC, and Strengths Finders. And some advantages of these tools include things like improved self-awareness and from a recruiting standpoint, the ability to understand candidates better, the opportunity to shorten the recruitment cycle, eliminate bias, and even in some cases, spot dark personality traits. And for most organizations, they have the goal of helping employees uh, learn how to work better together. But however, there are some disadvantages, including the fact that many of these tools are inaccurate. They can actually increase recruitment bias, and there can be interpretation problems if you don't use a consultant. People can also make false assumptions about others based on their assessment type, and they can put people in categories or boxes. And the fact is that humans are much more nuanced than this. And so, as I mentioned, we're going to focus on one assessment uh, today, which is called the Enneagram. And I personally have found tremendous value from this assessment. And I happen to know my guest believes this also. (laughs) I actually don't know of a more qualified person to help me explore the Enneagram than Ginger Lapid Bogda. Ginger runs a consulting firm called the Enneagram in Business and is a consultant, trainer, she's a coach, and she has over 35 years of OD experience. Ginger has worked with Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, uh, service organizations, and has literally written a book on the Enneagram in Business. No, actually, she's written four books (laughs) with her fifth book coming out shortly. Ginger has trained over 500 professionals worldwide on how to use the Enneagram in their professional work, and she has her bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, a master's from UPenn, and her PhD from UC Santa Barbara. Welcome, Ginger. Thank you very much, Jeff. It is a great honor to welcome you on the show today, and I'm very excited to unpack the Enneagram with you over these two episodes. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned on today's episode, we're going to focus on the background of the Enneagram as an assessment tool. And then next episode, I'm super excited to unpack your new book, Team Transformations, right? Well, the new title is Transform Your Team with the Enneagram. Build trust, decrease stress, and increase productivity. Fantastic. So I had the opportunity, Ginger gave me an advanced reading of this book. So before it comes out, and I am highly recommending it. We have a lot to jump into today. I would love it, Ginger, if you could actually just start us out by giving us a thumbnail of your career journey, take us back through that journey and share also who inspired you the most along the way. Hmm. So the short version of the long story, because I'm old enough to have a long story, is (laughs) I started out as a teacher and realized the importance of both learning cognitively and learning emotionally or interpersonally. 
in being an effective learner and an effective teacher. And I parlayed that. I've worked in organizations for decades as a trainer, as a consultant, an OD consultant, as a coach. And about 25 years ago, I actually now have about 45 years on me and consulting. It's like really seriously long, but about 25 years ago, I crossed paths with the Enneagram. I didn't create it. It's actually three to 4,000 years old. We're not sure how old it is, but it's been evolving over centuries and has had a modern rebirth. And my sort of mission or passion is to bring it out into the organizational world so that organizations can be more effective, people can be more uh, productive and happier at work and more satisfied. And in the process, the secondary is that they really get to know themselves and others better. So I do, and I've, I think at this point, I probably, I don't even, I stopped counting, but maybe two, 3,000 professionals worldwide I've trained. I don't know. I work directly with organizations and I write these books to help foster that. So I want to say something that you said, and I think it's really important. It's the downside and upside. So the Enneagram or it really any assessment really should not be used for hiring. Mm. But the Enneagram types themselves, and there are nine of them, they will tell you a lot about a person's patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving, right? You know that, Jeff. Yes. And they will tell you a lot about their worldview. And so there is a great value to these nine perspectives. But Hiring should be based on skills for the job sure, and experience, although experience is a tricky thing because you take one, a person who's had 20 years of experience, but they've been doing the, the same thing over and over. Yes. And somebody who's had eight years of experience, but they learn from it. So I say, which, which person would you hire? The other is that what really is relevant to hiring because it makes a more effective employee besides skills and experience is their level of self-mastery, their mm. ability to as understand themselves, work with themselves, not be reactive, but make be more conscious and choiceful and ability to work with all kinds of other people effectively. Now, the Enneagram helps people develop self-mastery. Ah, but type itself, you can get a low self-mastery person of any type and can they can destroy an, a team or an, they're at the top. <laughs> Takes about three months to destroy a top. If you have a top leader who's highly dysfunctional, no matter what their type, and I'd say three years to rebuild it after finally they leave. Wow. I want to go a little deeper into the assessment space. Can you render your opinion about why so many personality assessments are actually used in the workplace today? There is a big market financially and a lot of financial gain for people who provide that. So there's lots of offerings. From the point of view of employers, how do we know how to hire well? Because the cost of a bad hire is huge and it's getting more so. And the higher the level you're hiring for, the more significant the role, the worse a bad hire is. So people are like, how do I know how to hire people? And people can fake interviews and people are not telling the truth necessarily on resumes. I've had that experience myself with people I've hired and it's time consuming to hire people. So I think for some hiring managers, recruiter, it's a shortcut, but is it sometimes shortcuts don't get you where you want to go. So this is an issue, I think, because sometimes like with the Myers-Briggs, for example, I know it's been used in a lot of hiring processes and I know the MBTI pretty well. Say you have a group and you got their MBTI scores and you go, this is a pretty high functioning group, right? Or people are talented. 
let me hire like that based on score. Okay, but are you getting the most variety of perspectives? Are you cloning again? Mm-hmm. You, if you get so many people that are so much similar to one another in by virtue of something about them, the MBTI score, disc score, whatever, then you're going to eventually in the short run, maybe it's easier to function together, but in the medium and long run, and there's a lot of research to prove this, you're going to be in trouble. You don't get effectiveness, longer term effectiveness by cloning on, on any basis. Yeah. So really what you're saying is that by using some of these assessment tools as part of the recruiting process, we could have a counter effect on our diversity Mm -hmm. inclusion initiatives. Mm -hmm. We could end up further solidifying our lack of diversity because we're always going for the same type of person because they have proven to be an effective team member or they're contributing to the culture, but they're not helping us make better decisions or things like that. Is that correct? Right. And then the other issue is maybe they were good for as is state, but if you look at creating the the organization, the culture you want in the future, is that going to get where you want to go? A lot of times there's a default to trying to use Enneagram tests, just for example. And the Enneagram, as I said, cannot really be used for hiring, but you can make a lot of errors that way. But the tests are only about 65 to 70% accurate anyway. Sure. That makes sense. Share a little bit more about the Enneagram. You mentioned it's three or 4,000 years old. That's just ridiculously old. So I assume it was passed down orally, traditionally. Yeah, originally. And then things were added to the system and et cetera. So that's exactly right. So give us an overview of what it is for those people that are not familiar with it. So there's nine types, each with a distinct pattern of thinking a pattern of emotional response pattern, habitual, and a tendency to act in certain ways. No type is better than any other type, although sometimes people want to think so, but it's not the truth. They're just different. The thing about the Enneagram that's really, I think, astounding is it shows you a mirror of who you actually are. And also it's a development system. So it's not about, okay, this is how you are. You can understand yourself better and you can accept yourself more, which is fantastic. But the second thing is, so it shows you how you can develop if you want to with specific development paths based on each type, which is super helpful. So I'll go through the nine types, okay? In terms of leadership style, I'll reference the type in general. And then I'll give you, I hope a story that will be short. Okay, perfect. And before you jump in real quick, it sounds like what you're saying is actually it's very pragmatic because when you know your type, there's these very obvious sort of areas that you can work on on a regular basis to really move and live into your higher self. Is that correct? Yeah. So the thing, I'm going to do it to leadership, but you parenting, teachings, it's about how to communicate more effectively. It's about how to give, deal with conflict because there's real patterns by type how we deal with conflict, how we respond to it. Are we helping ourselves? What are some additional ways? It's around more choicefulness. Yes. Okay, great. So let me start with, I'll start with, I'll go one through nine. Okay. So we'll start with type one. There are books and people that will give them labels, each of the types. I tend not to do that because 
I don't like labeling anyway. And I think Enneagram is about showing you who you are and helping you move beyond a label. So I won't do that. But in type one, they're really seeking perfection, although they know they won't be perfect and they're not, but it's constant wanting to be, and they're avoiding making mistakes. They really don't like that. So they're trying to get everything right. So one leader, their leadership style tends to be this, that they see a leader's job is to set clear objectives and inspire others to achieve the highest quality, super high standards, often leading by example, very clear and precise. They tend to be very pragmatic, but developmentally need to relax control because they like to control everything. That's how you get it as perfect as possible. And delegating is difficult because nobody can do it quite as well to the standard. Mm -hmm. So one of my clients who's a one was in a group of peers and this person said, I can delegate, I can delegate to, this person had a span of 45 employees who worked in that space. And so that person said, well, I can delegate. Well, how many people, peer says? Well, two people. Well, why only two? Because I only delegate to people who can do it better than me. And somebody else in the, <laughs> in the group said, hey, your job as a leader is to develop people as well. What would it be like if you could do it with people, delegate to people as, who could do it as well as you? That would be five people. They said, well, you need to expand it. Who can do it 80% as well? And then you develop them. So that's type one. Okay. So let's hear about type two. Choose. This is a type, which is my type, mm -hmm. that's very focused on how other people and helping them do something more effectively, being, finding out, tuning into what their needs. They're very intuitive. They tend to focus on others, much less on themselves. So they think the leader's job is to assess the strengths and weaknesses of team members. And they're really good at it. And then motivate their team members towards the achievement of what the organization's wanting to accomplish. Now, these are all different, but they're all really effective. But then you get into a narrow view, like effective in certain circumstances and maybe not so much in others. So their strengths tend to be very, being empathic and motivation of other people and development areas, setting boundaries, saying, no, no, you can't do this. No, that wasn't okay. And it was setting boundaries so people hear them and delivering difficult information. Usually kind of giving feedback when it's emotional and the per you care about the person or you think they're going to have a strong negative reaction, very difficult. They're also sensitive to the environment. I've known several twos who are in leadership and they really tried to change the culture of the organization to be more people-oriented and positive and they couldn't do it. Sure. And so what did they end up doing? They got very frustrated. They kept trying and they left precipitously. And that's a big loss to the organization because they weren't able to influence the way they wanted to. In yeah. the world of two, if it's painful and people are suffering, I can't bear to be in this. Mm -hmm. It sounds like twos care deeply about others and they care deeply about improving the situation. But less self-care. So the leaving is like, it's really got to the person and they weren't taking care of themselves, trying so hard to take care of others that they ended up leaving the organization. Sure. And possibly regretting it. So the tendency of the two could be to sacrifice themselves at the gain of the organization or whatever. Exactly. They're dealing with. But then you sacrifice and then you give away so much. Gotcha. And don't okay, take great. care of yourself. The other thing that's helpful as you're explaining these is for people to listen to them in terms of which type they think they might be. So if listeners can kind of have an open ear to that. And I would say that a key takeaway there too, at least for myself, was when I listened to my type, 
in some ways it made it described me and it's like oh yeah that's me but then it also made me cringe a little bit because um, yeah. <laughs> so if those are what you're experiencing then that could be your type right. so now we're going to get your cringe although i know you've been working on yourself so i hope that the more you work on yourself and that's true for me i cringe less on my yes. type and work more on the development yes so type three my type let's hear it all right so this is the type that's results 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 ready and fire wanting results wanting to perceive oneself as successful or competent. You define success by their own term, they do, but avoiding failure, that's like at all costs. So what happens, their style of leadership is they like to set goals and create plans automatically and then deliver on them. So they create an environment that achieves results and they think that happens when people understand the organization's goals and structure. So the strength, getting results and staying focused, staying really focused on the deliverables and the results, but the development can be very impatient when things are not moving fast enough and afraid to take risks that where they might fail. And that's a really, even in one's personal life, my son, who's a three, he never would swim because he didn't feel like he could, could be successful with his feet off the ground. So he's fabulous when any sport, except not his feet off the ground, that made him anxious. Now he's starting to take the risk and swim and it's okay. And he's even enjoying the process, you know, though they can be super competent, but when they feel like they're risking failure or they can overwork them, work themselves so because they don't want to fail, then they can get interpersonally abrupt. The way I say it is the person who could teach charm school needs to go to it. <laughs> relate to that? You want to give a story about yourself, Jeff? Yeah, well, I appreciate that description. And I'm reflecting on sometimes as a three, what happens for me is I am so goal oriented and focused that I will lose sight of the important connections that I need to be maintaining mm -hmm. and keeping with my team. Right. And it's very interesting too, because obviously I run a software company and our software is the name of my company is Goalspan. So that's Which sort I of- I laughed when I heard that one. Speaks right into the threedom. But I will also add, Ginger, that it's pretty incredible when you look across this country because it's filled with threes. And many business leaders and CEOs or executives, people in the C-suite are threes. Now, not always the case, but they get fueled and encouraged and motivated by societal norms and encouragement mm. for this achievement orientation, which oftentimes for people that achievement orientation can be at the expense of a more fulfilling life. So that's a bigger picture discussion that we could probably take offline somewhere else. But I'd also add countries, many countries have a type culture. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is a type three, although different regions are not. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So and in corporate America, it tends to be a little bit three-ish, but doesn't mean all the leaders are threes. So sometimes, and this is for your audience, people might mistake themselves for threes when they're not because the culture of the organization has sort of required them to be very three-like. Sure. One more thing on the three before we move on. I'm thinking about how threes can be leaders, but this is, goes back to your original point of being careful to value every single type on the Enneagram because 
if we can fill our leadership teams with a diversity of types, we're going to end up making better decisions. If I fill my leadership team with a group of threes, then we're going to be a little bit more narrow-minded than we would be otherwise, even if we're achievement-oriented, but it's also going to probably have a negative effect on our overall culture. Wouldn't you agree with that? Hypothetically. I think it varies whether they're filled with three, right? But I think many, it depends on the company. But let's hypothetically say that the most corporate, the corporations run by a lot of threes, right? What are you going to get? You're going to get results. You're going to get measurable objectives. But what, what might you not get? Enough attention to people, enough attention to development, enough attention to risk-taking. Because right now we're in a place where 10 or 15 years ago, there wasn't such a need to take risks, right? There was more stability. Now we're in unknown territory. There is a need to take risk. So if the fear of failure is looming and that's your failure avoidant type, that could impact your willingness to take risks. Yes, that makes sense. But anyway, to type four, fours like to think of themselves as different, unique, and special. And they tend to be the most in internally oriented of all the nine types. So they're looking at meaning and purpose and vision and real and deep inspiration. That's really cool because they sit right next numerically to threes that are focused on the external drive for results and plans. Here you have a type, let's find purpose and meaning in the work we do, which is really, really important. So we can do excellent work. The strengths are creating a deep vision and connecting with others emotionally. I mean, they will hang in there. Whereas the threes can be impatient and other types can be more impatient, not the four so much. Uh, but what are the development areas? Well, not taking things personally that happen and being able to regulate their feelings internally because they're very feeling responsive. So I had a client who I was tasked to give feedback to this person as well as several others and to collect feedback and use the Enneagram typing to help them understand how they were processing what the feedback might be. Now, the interesting thing, this person was a four, was so anxious about getting the feedback from me. And the question I asked was why? Because in a prior job, they had gotten some feedback and it had been very negative. Now, the feedback I had on this person was hugely positive. Sure. That person didn't know it yet, but the pain of having gotten negative feedback 20 years earlier, 15 years earlier, was so deeply in this person that the fear and the pain... It was awful. So then I knew I had all this positive to say, but we got through that. And when I gave this person positive feedback, seriously, they across their desk. My person is almost twice as tall as me to hug me. The relief was huge. I love that story. And I'll just say that one of the things that seems important, if you truly understand the nine types, mm -hmm. if I'm going to go provide feedback to a four and I understand what their tendency would be in terms of how they receive that feedback, I might tweak my approach a little bit yeah. so that we can end up with a better and more valuable conversation, wouldn't you say? Right. Yeah. And then the second thing I would say is, it sounds like what you're saying is we should really lean on fours when it comes to things like vision casting within our strategic planning process. We should make sure that they have a big seat at the table to help us guide the organizational direction and... Okay, so I have a different take. I could say yes and. Okay, let's hear if it. If you have a very skilled for the job and experienced for, mm -hmm. and they're at the table, which is great, let them influence you to get more visionary yourself. Let them ah. help you find that inspiration in you. Sure. So we don't rely on the threes to set objectives and results. We right. can find that in us. 
we don't rely on the twos to try to motivate and to figure out what people need and want. They, we, they can help us bring that out in ourselves. Yeah. That's my, maybe my message. Great. I love that. Go to fives. So fives like things to be objective and logical and systematic. They're very mentally cerebrally oriented and they disconnect from with their feelings in real time. Go off and have them later though. So in some sense, their fives are almost the purest of feeling. They just don't experience it in real time. So they believe that a leader's job is to develop an effective organization through research, deliberation, and planning. So it's ready, ready, aim, ready, ready, aim, fire. Mm -hmm. And they want all systems to fit together so that people are working on a common mission. So their strengths are being objective and being logical in the way they approach things. What are the development areas? It's approachability. Because if you disconnect from feelings in real time and keep a little distance, people don't know how to read you. And emotional connectivity, they do connect when people they want to emotionally can be at work, can be at home, but they're selective. They're very selective. So they need to not feel like we're intruding on them. They need 50% more space if we're in physical proximity to them. Mm-hmm. And the normal space between people and the culture you're in varies by culture is might be 12 or 18 inches. Add six more inches, mm. 12. Interesting. It's Interesting. 18, add nine, more, you know, something like that. Yeah. They just like, they don't want to feel like somebody's coming too close. So most of the five leaders that I coach, it's amazing. They get some very similar feedback, which is people feel like they, they may respect them, but they don't feel like they know them. What I tell the five leaders is it's not that they really want to know you. They think they do. They want you to feel that you know them. They want, they're looking for connectivity. So I usually coach them to don't feel obligated to share stuff that you don't want to, but spend time with people, ask them how they're doing and listen. Okay, great. So let's go to six. So sixes are the most complex of the nine types. And this is a type that believes that the world is not certain, there's no, it's not certainty and predictability in the world. So they're trying to figure out how to make it a more certain world. And they know it's not a certain world. So they have an ex- relationship to risk, risk avoidant, risk wanting to go into risk to prove that they're not risk averse, afraid. It's kind of fun. Some of them are just very dutiful to the team and to the organization. So that avoids their risk. Some create little tribes or families around them. So they believe that a leader's job is to solve organizational problems by developing a creative problem-solving environment. So every person feels that they are part of the solution. Mm. Strengths, problem-solving, perceiving alternative pathways, but development is too little or too much risk-taking and skepticism, continuously asking what ifs, what ifs, which can selectively can be good, but too much they can create the perception of that they're keeping the group or the team or the organization from moving forward because they keep, what about this? What about that? Well, actually, sixes would prefer other people would ask that. So they didn't feel like they had to keep asking. Sixes may be the ones in the leadership team that are willing to ask those questions that other people aren't. And so it sounds like it's a matter of balance. We want to hear from the sixes in terms of their questions to help us mitigate risk, but we want to do that with the correct lens and the right balance. Now, I had one six client who was the kind of six that would go against the fear with action. And it was a little hard to see that there was this risk thing. The person's team member said, we would follow this leader anywhere. And I said, over a cliff? 
yes, if our leader said it was safe <laughs> over the cliff, and I went, okay, this is a version of six also. Wow. Because they can be quite charming. Mm -hmm. right? They may not show that they're playing risk. Sure. What is the seven and their tendencies? All right. So sevens are the most optimistic of all of the Enneagram types. And although we might think of optimism as a good thing, which it is, but we're talking about like super optimistic. Everything's good and everything's possible and the fewest limitations. Nobody has the right to restrict me. We can do anything we want to. Often they think with the right people and the right team, we can do everything, which isn't, in a sense, is that really grounded in reality, but it is a very action-oriented, but they love idea generation. That's what stimulates them. And I want to take, because I know some of the people listening are go, well, I like ideas and I'm creative and all. It's not about creativity. It's about idea generation. Some sevens are more creative than others. It's just like really getting enamored of ideas and sometimes lacking the ideas as much or more than the execution. So they believe that a leader's job is to get people excited and to create innovative ideas and ventures so that the organization can take advantage of new and important business opportunities. So some of the strengths are being very innovative and enlisting others in their vision. They love that. But the development area is being able to stay focused. They, the attention span is really challenging. You say something and they're on to something else. They have minds that move from idea to idea, concept to concept so quickly. Sure. It's like a computer mind where there's no file folders. Everything's a document. Gotcha. <laughs> and they have challenges adhering to limits. They hate the word no. It's not in their vocabulary. I see. Now, I've had a number of seven clients, but one who's been a long-term client, this leader, a seven, wanted everybody on the team, senior leadership team, to put their own ideas forward and couldn't understand why they weren't. Why? Because this person had so many ideas spewing, coming, that there wasn't much space and time for anybody else to add. Other people were having challenges understanding the ideas because they were happening so quickly to even process. <laughs> There's also a challenge. What are we supposed to execute on? Which of these ideas does this leader like? Are these just ideas? Right. And if we start adding our own, even if we have the space to, that'd be like instead of 20 thing, ideas, now we're at 30 and more, and we're overwhelmed. I see. So it can be a little challenging to people who work for leaders who are sevens, who might really enjoy working for them, but it's like, what do we focus on here? So it sounds like the seven can be motivating and inspiring and they're filled with energy and they're bringing this life to the team and they have all right. these ideas and they're gonna bring this level of energy that might not exist otherwise, but it also sounds like the challenge is reining that in a little bit so that we retain some focus and we retain some direction and we retain enough margin in the group for others to contribute. Is that correct? Right. The leader thought, I'm asking for them to contribute. Didn't understand why they didn't. There wasn't any space between thoughts. Sometimes the sevens, I had one, another seven client. I said to this person, do you ever breathe? Because the words were, and ideas were coming so yes. fast. And that I was like, you're not breathing. There's no space for other people to contribute into the system. I'll add a footnote to the seven before we moved on. We move on to the eight. 
So you mentioned your son. Well, my my younger son is also a seven. So he happens to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And we, for those of you that are interested, between episodes 25 and six, we recorded a bonus episode where I had the opportunity to interview him. He's very familiar with the Enneagram. He knows he's a seven. And he wrote a song called Still. That episode, he goes into the value of being present Wow. Both in the workplace and he brought his experiences from as being a camp counselor into the episode. And we unpacked those from a leadership lens. But it seems like when the seven can have the ability to really arrive and be present, then there's this opportunity to show up in a new way that's really going to enhance things. My reaction to your story, I imagine you are very proud of him for that because not only is creative and all, but being still is one of the most challenging things for a seven. They're always in motion. Their minds are in motion. They use their arms a lot to explain, and they often pace and they need to be moving and really moving. So to be still is to be present, but for any of us, but to be dealing with our emotions because there's a way that sevens do move away from their emotions except joy. They love that. Mm -hmm. And so the name of the song, the piece is still, that's just so amazing. Yeah, I'm very proud of him. Okay, number eight. Type eight. Okay, so eights are the big, bold superheroes or so they think of themselves. Sure. They can take the city. They're supposed to protect the weak, the victimized, although they don't like weakness in others at all because they need to be strength and boldness. But if people are being abused or being treated poorly, they are the first to show up and be the big defenders. And if you understand it, it's like only the powerful can defend or big enough to defend the weak, right? So Mm -hmm. it kind of works. And in leadership, they believe that their job is to move the organization forward by leading decisively, getting capable and reliable people in the right jobs. Then they can trust your work and empowering competent people to take action. They don't empower people that they don't perceive as competent, but if they don't perceive you as competent and they have anything choice about it, you won't be working for them very long. So their strengths can be taking charge and being assertive, but the development areas, of course, each type has both sides, being receptive to others' opinions. The eights are a type that kind of trusts their gut reaction. If they have a reaction to something or about action or about an individual, they believe that's the truth. And they're often not as receptive to others. So it's about sometimes you need to be receptive. You can't always trust your gut about people. They like big action. They don't like medium action. They don't like small action. It's got to be big. So sometimes big action isn't what's called for, but their guts say, take this big action. And they can overextend themselves tremendously. They go into like overhaul, overwork, overdo. I don't want to concern people too much, but I need to say this. Sometimes they don't pay attention to how overworked they are or their physical well-being. And they can land up in the hospital out of sheer exhaustion. Or there could be something wrong, but they power through some ailment and then it can be serious. So it's about really paying attention, not to just moving, powering forward, but to whether you're leading a team powering forward or you're pushing yourself to power forward and power on. It's to also allow yourself to power down and be and pay attention to what's really going on and to be more receptive. So for eights, it's 
paying attention internally to what's going on and whether they actually are overworking and whether they are listening in over or overeating or undereating or over exercising or under exercising or over under they tend to go either over or under sure and then it's a matter of also paying attention externally so on your team for instance making sure to pay attention are you allowing other viewpoints are you really allowing enough space for mm-hmm. people to provide a viewpoint and inform the decision yeah, exactly the other thing i'm getting the sense about the eight ginger it sounds like the way you've described them showing up with a big presence is that often the case as they sort of yes even if they're and some are more introverted like anybody and some are quieter which doesn't mean you're introverted but their presence is felt whether they're talking or they're not talking. Gotcha. And they know how to power up energetically, somatically. All right, type nine. The nine, the kind of viewpoint is I go along to get along. I want harmony. I want everybody to feel part of this. They tend to really value consensus, everybody having a voice, being respectful, not being rude is super important to them. So they believe their job is to help everyone achieve the collective mission by a clearly structured, harmonious work environment. So sometimes it's like people say about minds, they don't like conflict. That's partly true. They don't because it creates disharmony. But on the other hand, they're super good at mediating conflict between others. They listen to you. They nod their heads. They seem to, they understand multiple perspectives. I've seen nines mediate conflict between two others where the two other people didn't even need to get together. They felt so listened to and understood. So their strengths of the nine leader is creating consensus and listening to multiple viewpoints. And they really do value multiple viewpoints. But mm-hmm. then on the other hand, developmentally, taking a firm stand, sometimes it can be very hard for nines and leaders do need to take stands. But the question is how, what, when, and how. But for nines, it can be hard to take a stand because they don't want to create tension and conflict. And sometimes they're not quite sure because they see so many perspectives what their stand is. And sometimes they want to hear everybody else because they like what amongst all these viewpoints, what be common ground, but they do, leaders do need to take a stand sometimes. It's important for nine leaders to develop that. And then they need to also learn how to face conflict directly and not get throttled because many nines feel it in their bodies when there's conflict directed at them or they're angry and they often will not let themselves be aware that they're angry, but they are, but they feel it in their bodies. And then they cause themselves, that causes them to not sleep so well and to feel tension and it's uncomfortable. And so it's about learning how to do that. It seems like the work of the nine is really to be able to maybe process that emotion, but then let go eventually. And actually, I guess, look at those situations proportionally for what they really are, not overplayed or overblown. Okay, great. So we've now covered all the nine types and that was a great overview. So thank you so much for that. Ginger, let's talk about your new book for a second. What motivated you originally to write this book? You've written four other books and tell me about that process. So teams, before I even knew the Enneagram, teams and leadership and diversity were the three areas that I probably knew the most about, but I was a general organizational consultant. I, when I learned the Enneagram, it was clear and easy for me to work, understand how it worked with teams. And in the early stages of my work in business, where people were like trying to learn, how do you bring the Enneagram to business? There were people who said, you can't use it in teams. And I'm like, are you kidding me? They just didn't understand teams. So in a certain way, 
writing a book that integrates the Enneagram with teams and team development, team leadership and team membership and all is a natural. I probably could have, should have, why didn't I do it years ago? Okay, so then it gets to your question, which is funny. Why did I do it now? The Enneagram has taken off markedly and there are a lot of organizations wanting to use the Enneagram in their teams and asking for people to help them do that, consultants. And what I've been finding, because I have a network of people and I have other people and clients, and so I'm sort of like tuned in. There are a lot of Enneagram consultants, trainers, who don't know how to really work with teams. And they're, can, you can do a lot of damage working with the team, with the Enneagram, as if the Enneagram is the be-all, end-all. And I was seeing that, and I'm getting people calling me about, now, we did this, but it didn't work, and we need you to come in and work with us. Or somebody is like, um, I work with this person, and they were going to do this. I'm like, no, that's not going to work. That's, you got issues that need to be dealt with before you actually bring the Instagram in. So I was getting enough of that. And so I feel like, okay, I need to write this book on teams and the Instagram for leaders. So they know how and when to work with the, you know, and when to bring in a consultant, how to work with the Instagram with their team, but also their leadership style. Because a lot of it leaders you can do on your own, right? How to be a really good team member if you knew how to do this. Because teams, good teams don't just happen magically. Sometimes they just feel that way, but there is a process and you can, one can make, you can almost make any team into a really high performing one if you know how to do it. And so, and then for consultants, trainers, and coaches, a lot of coaches shouldn't be doing team Instagram because they're not trained in teams. And so I was seeing like work coming out or people getting misled. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book and sort of share, put it all on the table about everything you need to know and do. And then I had enough stories. I said, all right, this needs to have a story example other way. I didn't exhaust even all my stories, but it's full of examples, but it's more in story form than example. And, you know, you've read it. That's great. And I was just appreciating as reading, as I was reading the book, how the book actually provides a framework, whether you want to try to implement some of these tools internally yourself, or you're a consultant and you want to go in and assist an organization. It's really a, a playbook. Right. And in the last chapter, it's about, so what if you're a team member? Here's also stuff you can do based on having read this book. So yeah, it's multi-layered. I'm also just kind of amazed at how little organizations invest in leadership development about what it looks like to build a successful and engaged and productive and highly performing team. And also how to be a good team member that seems to be a non-existent thing. Right. You know, it, it surprises me too, because we're so team-based now. And it's been a trend for many year, years, almost getting to be decades. And then with the pandemic and remote, we're no longer all in person. We often were kind of a hybrid, but now it's really hybrid. Some teams are remote, some are fully, some are in person, rarely fully anymore. Some are a mixture, right. but it takes new challenges to be on that team. It's, I don't think it's harder. It's just different. I'm sure there are some companies that do teach you how to be a really good team leader, but I don't think there are many. And I mean, what are they teaching no. you really? It's a story in my book too, but one of my coaching clients is a very talented person. No leadership training whatsoever. Just drive in and figure it out. It's like, what? That's why I was a coach. Because it shouldn't be that hard. And why would do that? Maybe they don't know how to train leaders mm -hmm. or they don't want to take the time. But now it's like, 
leaders, it's very stressful. It's stressful when you're new and you haven't been trained or you're just trying to, it's like, what do you do? It's stressful when you're at the top because as one of my old clients said, this is not in the book, but it's, I'm consulting to you on a topic in your company and I'm not your coach. Why do you always want to talk to me when I come here? And he said, because when you get to my level, nobody tells you the truth anymore. So there's that. And then it's stressful that way. And it's stressful if you're any role you're in, it's just different kinds of stresses and leadership. So why can't we reduce that? And I think the Enneagram mm-hmm. can be really helpful in that. There is no leader, really. There are some people who are called leaders and they're, who do they lead? Just themselves. Mostly people are leading some other people. Mm-hmm. And why aren't we training them well to do that? Right. Oftentimes it's a financial decision. So the they don't want to invest in that training, but what they're not seeing is the opportunity cost of not investing in it. What are they investing in? Because they have money to invest in development. What are they investing in? Well, they're investing in sales growth and development and marketing opportunities and new strategies and entering new markets and acquiring other companies. And <laughs> the list goes on and on and on. And the reason why they invest in those things is because the CFO continues to demonstrate that there's a return on investment that's very tangible. So you can look at a profit and loss mm-hmm. statement, or you can look at a pro forma and see how did we did we make it? Did we not make it? Whereas the investment in human capital is much more intangible, but it oftentimes has an even greater result mm-hmm. than investing in those other elements of the organization. All right. With your book, you provided a great definition of psychological safety. And I think the way you put it in there, Ginger, was that it's the belief that you won't be humiliated or punished for sharing your thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And that it also means that you feel safe to take personal and interpersonal risks with others. I love that definition. And I'm also curious, why does it not work well when psychological safety is not present? If you don't feel a team or you take an or there's a lack of psychological safety, how productive are they going to be? What are they going to do? How committed are they going to be? Aren't people going to leave? The cost of leave uh, people leaving the organization is huge. How productive is a team going to be? Not too much. There's going to be a huge no. leadership loss. And I'm not saying lack of psychological safety is all about the leader's behavior, but how is that helpful? But in the context of the book, Jeff, what I'm talking about is the Enneagram doesn't solve all problems. If there's not at least a moderate level of psychological safety, the Enneagram can make things worse because how open are people going to be to uncover themselves, right? And to self-disclose or share things about themselves. So if the level of psychological safety is low, here's my invocation. Hey, leaders. Hey, people. Hey, companies fix those things. Those can be, you need to find out why it's low. And then it goes to, which I know you're going to ask me, the relationship between trust and psychological safety, right? I know you're going to go there. (laughs) And I think it's a good question, but if people don't trust, there's lack of low trust. The question you need to, one needs to ask, I, when working as a customer, why? Trust is a, it's a symptom, not a cause. Psychological safety is, if there's low psychological safety, there's going to be low trust. If there's low trust, there's going to be a factor of something where psychological safety plays in. But even with psychological safety, what's the cause of it? There's always a cause. And then work with that. That's my thing. It seems like organizations that try to implement this Enneagram stuff without 
having the undergirding of psychological safety would essentially be doing a check the box event that could actually have a counter effect. Exactly. Tell us about the difference between a group and a team. Okay. Mm -hmm. A group is a collection of people who have something in common and something they probably do together. But a team is a subset or a special kind of group where yes, they is a group collection of people and they have something, but a team needs to have at least one common goal that they agree is a common goal, is a common goal and some degree of reliance or interdependence on each other, not everybody, but within them to be able to accomplish that goal or the goals. So I've seen a lot of leaders in organizations who have a group and they try to make them a team and they spend a lot of money trying, but they're never going to be a team because they don't have any common goals or level of interdependence. And that can often happen. You get, depends on how the organizations, but you might find the head of H, finance has HR reporting to them and logistics and like those are seemingly random, but they need to report to somebody. That's a group. You see what I mean? So it's very important for groups to not try to be teams if they never will be. But the other is also true. If you are a team, but you're functioning like a group where you've never defined your common goals or you don't have the interdependence to get there, stop acting like a group and define your impossible teamhood to spend some time. What are our common goal or goals and what's our interdependence for getting there that will serve us well? And then you can move from a possible to an actual team. Why is impatience the greatest enemy of becoming a high-performing team? <laughs> oh my. Because it takes some time to get to know each other. It takes time to work the issues out. It takes time to get clarity on our charter and get to know each other. Then who are we? What resources do we? It takes time. And most people want to jump to the action, jump to the deliverable. There's no exception to that. Now, there are a few types that realize, hey, we don't really know each other. We need to spend some time, but they'll get overridden. They also want to jump. But if you start to jump, get to the action, what action? Is it the best action? No, probably not. And not everybody's going along with this. They, so sometimes it might be the right action, but everybody, you need to get people onboarded with it. If they're not informed, if they're not included, if they don't, it's not going to go. We not only provide performance management software, but we have a consulting arm. And so we'll do strategic planning mm -hmm. sessions and we'll take teams and do two-day offsite and they'll do all this great vision casting. And I've found that over the course of my career that teams will be overly zealous. So they get into the impatience mode and they think that they're actually going to execute the entire plan in the next 90 days. We're always having to rein them in and say, okay, let's get really realistic and pragmatic mm -hmm. about this. And it's difficult for people to do that, isn't it? They don't want to. They really but don't they want need to. to. And we're people too. I mean, I can get impatient. I'm sure you can. Me too, especially as an Enneagram yeah. 3. And I, you, I probably, <laughs> I don't know. We probably are both equally impatient, but over different things. Some of the things that cause right. you to feel impatient are maybe not the things that would, cause, that would generate impatience in me, but oh man. Okay, Ginger, in your book, I thought you beautifully linked the Enneagram types with Bruce Tuckman's model. Mm -hmm. His, For those of you that aren't familiar, it's this forming, storming, norming, and performing. 
Can you explain to our listeners what that model is and how the Enneagram fits into this? Every team, not a group, but team, to become a high-performing one needs to go through the four stages of team development. This was a research-based model. It totally works. It's sequential. Forming, you need to form as a team, both in terms of what's our task, what do, can we align around our charter, our task, our deliverables, and the relationships and processes. Are we attuned to each other? Do we know each other? Do we all want to be part of this? Can we move forward? And then inevitably, there's a, that's forming. Then you go to storming. Storming is we have differences. It doesn't mean an out-and-out conflict. It just means we have differences in how we're functioning, we're operating, our understanding. Maybe somebody feels abrupt to me and not to you, and that's a little tension in there. And But it can be from mild to, to severe. But I think the issue is that those need to be brought up and resolved because they will go underground if not. Now, if there's too much conflict and tension in a team, why? I'd ask why, and it usually has something to do with the dynamics of the team or the forming stage, but, and other factors too, but okay. If there's too little or none, it means they're sitting on something and they're not sharing. It's like, it's going to show up. So Mm -hmm. they bring up the issues and get those resolved. Then teams go to the norming stage, which means what are our new working agreements that we need to either change from older ones or add to that will help us function more effectively. And they can be norms, even as what day of the week are we going to have our team meetings? Maybe the day isn't work for people or how long they're going to be or structural, structural things. things, or it could be like, mm-hmm. what food are we going to have? It's in person. I'm tired of whatever we're serving for lunch. <laughs> I mean, a lot of companies can get into rat, ruts stuff. It's just, but it's a new norm. And then we agree to it. And then once that, then move to high performing. Now it doesn't mean that the team is going to stay at high performing. They're there, but some different things, like they get a new leader, it can be back to forming, but hopefully the new leader is similar enough and open enough to the team that if that, and oriented enough, that they can go back to high performing pretty quickly. If the new leader is dramatically awful for them or just dramatically different, that's going to be a struggle because the team's already in a different place. But change of resources, change of charter can do that. But the teams that have gone to high performing already they will handle those with great resilience and ability and capability. The teams that haven't, you put a, they're maybe delivering, but you put a change, a major change to them, they're going to struggle with it because they haven't gone through the earlier stages enough and they're going to have to go back and revisit. And so they do. But see, everybody wants to get to high performing, back to your patience question. And right. you got to put the time in. I mean, you're still functioning and accelerating into doing things together, but it's the time is so well spent and it's really important. So how do the types connect to this? Well, we have different behaviors at each of the stages by type, highly predictable. Some of them support movement forward and some of them may not as much. So in my book, I describe that at each stage, what's the typical behavior? What would be some shifts if you were wanting to help the team move forward based on your type? What would that be? And experiment with it. They're not like... They're not asking you to be radically different. It's just, hey, okay, let me try this and see if it changes things. And then do teams, as they're moving through these stages, really have a clear and open understanding mm-hmm. of each other's different types? And are they able to have open communication with one another about how they can serve the team better? Well, they, yeah, based they do on that. Their... But here's my experience with teams that work with us. 
they, the Enneagram is inherently fascinating and people are really interesting and we get in curiosity. So when people know each other's types, they know their own and they're committed to their own development. That's helpful. When you're on a team with people like that, you learn so much about all the types, at least on the team, your depth of knowledge in, increases and your curiosity about, oh, that's why Jeff does this, right? He's like, oh, yeah. yeah. And we can have conversations about that. And sure. It's, and it's not only that's why Jeff does this, but it's from a non-judgmental place. Exactly. Because of the acceptance and value of every single type rather than one type being better than another or yeah. anything like that. Totally. But say Jeff does this and I do that. And that doesn't, Jeff doesn't like that I do that. Right. right? So can we have a conversation about that? Because I'm coming from how I normally would be in Jeff. What's the way of having a conversation where goes beyond understanding to where we can do things differently yeah. a little bit, one of us. Speaking of that, can you give us an example of how the knowledge of the Enneagram and somebody's number can help depersonalize conversations? Oh, it totally does. Because see, if you're taught the Enneagram correctly, it helps you see yourself in a more objective way. Mm -hmm. Now, if people hide behind their type and go, well, I just do that because I'm a five or I just, that's not how it's supposed to be used. But if you go and you're working on your development, and again, the Enneagram is beautiful as a development system because it specifically targets. So then you're in a way observing yourself and you're not identified with your type. You're working on yourself, accessing more of your more versatile, more uh, satisfying, less suffering, yes. higher self, if you will. It's really cool that way. So if we're in a, say we're not, but you're, I'm a two and you're a three, right? Mm -hmm. So suppose there's something between us, right? And I know, hey, Jeff's reacting this way. He's a three. I get why he's reacting that way. I don't have to feel, because as a two, I'll feel like I did something right. wrong. It's not working. I go, oh, it isn't that I did something wrong. Say, I can help me. So there I go thinking, I didn't know this isn't about that. I can work on my... Let's me here see him. Now he wants that. Do I have to do what he wants? Because as a two, I might want to. Hey, Ginger, you don't have to do that. I mean, I'm doing a lot of inner work with that, right? Not that he's ex just expecting me to do that. Right. But, okay, let me hear this. This is about something he might prefer. Now, maybe it's something he's willing to work on or not. But then it can become a very interesting co-creating situation. Very good. What's the expected release date of your book for people who are interested? And also, how can they find you? Well, the expected release date is probably, it's, we're looking at, there's a lot of variables, but it's looking like the end of June. And they'll be able to access it on Amazon. Great. For sure. So. Right? Either June or sometime in July. Now, how they can find me, theenneagraminbusiness.com. Perfect. And then they can, people can write into the website, but we would, we have a really, I think, robust website, lots of Enneagram resources on it. Invite people to kind of see what's there and, you right. know. I want to ask you some few questions before we wrap up. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Now, that's a hard one because what's coming to my mind is something where somebody might say something to me that's advice, but it's swearing. And I prefer not to swear, but it's when I get too concerned about others' reactions for some reason. It's not necessarily personal, but in sort of the space of organizations and pe the people I respect and know, and they just will say, well, nah, nah. you can fill in the words. Like, don't care about that. 
And that feels right now like really good advice, but I prefer not to use the, <laughs> the pronouns. The pronouns. <laughs> okay, great. So what is the most important takeaway to leave with our listeners from these last couple episodes? If you think back on our talks. I can answer that better about what I might want. Great, let's hear it. Explore the Enneagram. It's got great co- possibilities and capabilities. It's the system that when people get into it, they are more likely to bring it home into other aspects of their life. So it can make a huge difference. I am not a fan of personality systems, even though I know them well. So I think Enneagram, also some are useful in different ways. The Enneagram is fundamentally different and so powerful. And if it's not for you, okay. And sometimes it's not for you now, but three years from now, it shows up again in your life and you go, oh, I listened to a podcast on that. Now might be my time to explore. Let me, I'm going to turn the tables. I, you can, I'm a, what about for you, Jeff? What would you want the takeaway to be? I agree with you. I think curiosity was a word that came up either in the last episode or the beginning of this one. And curiosity has served me extremely well over my career. And I would say, be curious. I would say, walk away with a curiosity about your team, whether you're a team member or a leader. And be curious about what your Enneagram type is and how you show up and be curious about your own self-awareness and ways that you may have tendencies you're not even aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really loved our talk, just getting a summary of each of these different nine types and how they tend to show up at work and how human beings are so nuanced. And let's just Mm -hmm. accept that rather than try to change people and make them different. Let's try to allow them to show up in a way that allows their gifts to really shine and add value to the team. And wouldn't it be boring if everybody else were just like us? Absolutely. (laughs) Ginger, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for asking. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.